0: Who is to blame when you are tempted to sin? The devil? God? Bad people? What if I told you that the Bible says that the person responsible for your temptations is you? Welcome to Truth Trek, where we dive deep into the Bible to uncover the treasures there. I'm Pastor Jason Hovde, and I will be your guide as we journey together into Scripture, God's Holy Word. In today's episode, we will be examining the cause of our temptations, looking to some biblical teachings on the subject, and hopefully growing a little wiser and better able to fight our temptations. Our main topic, then, is the cause of temptations. In segment one, we're going to talk for a moment about the blessing of trials. And then in segment two, the danger of blaming God for our temptations, and in segment three, understanding the circle of death when we are lured by our sin and of desire sin and the ultimate result death we will be looking to scripture together primarily we're going to be in James chapter 1 verses 12 to 15 by the way if you're able to open your bible and look at it on your own as i'm reading that will be very helpful to you if you're driving in the car just drive and listen and Here we are at James chapter 1, starting at verse 12, which says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So in our first segment here, we want to address this idea of the blessing of trials. James had started out this chapter after his greeting by exhorting believers in James 1 2 4, saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As always, it's important that we understand the text in which a passage is written. I started by reading about temptations, and we see by looking to the beginning of this chapter that the larger theme is trials, not a specific trial at first, but James says trials of various kinds. So James is pointing out that Christians will have trials and that those trials test the faith and produce steadfastness. James then speaks to those who lack wisdom, which all of us lack perfect wisdom, so all of us are to ask God for this. And we are to ask with confident faith, not doubting, not being double-minded. Then James mentions the lowly and the rich, and then he gets to the verses I started with about remaining steadfast under trial. And this time, James gives us a more specific type of trial, the trial of temptation. First, James said, to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And here it says the one who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. And this type of trial that he is speaking of is the trial of temptation. Now, a flippant comment we may be tempted to make here would be, why in the world would it be a blessing to be tempted? Well, Look again at the text. It isn't being tempted that is the blessing, but blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And why? Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We are blessed when we endure a trial because we have had a victory. Now, to be sure, in any victory we have as we're living out the Christian life, the glory goes to God. If we're not in Christ, we are without any ability to resist the difficult temptations we are faced with. Without the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are powerless to withstand the trial. So, God is glorified when the saints endure the trial. And sometimes we fail the test as well. We might as well just put that out there. And there's no blessing in that when we fail the test. For we have betrayed our own human frailty, yet those in Christ are preserved. When we fail the test, we lean on the truth and promise of 1 John 1, 8, and 9, which says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But when we endure to the end, we are blessed. In Revelation, Jesus speaks to seven churches. In those uh, addresses to the seven churches, he gives cautions and encouragements and warnings um, and rebukes even. But again and again, he promises rewards to those who conquer. I'm going to read through them uh, fairly quickly here. Uh, and if you want to read these on your own, they're in chapter uh, 2 and 3 of Revelation. But first, the first one is in Revelation 2, 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. See the reward to the one who conquers. In verse 11, Revelation 2, 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Then in verse 17, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2.26, To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. angels. In Revelation 3.12, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And then finally in Revelation 3.21, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If you are in Christ Be encouraged to keep up the good fight against sin and against temptation in your life, because those who conquer, those who remain steadfast under trial, will be blessed. In segment two, we're going to look at the danger of blaming God or others for our temptations. People blame both God and the devil for being tempted. I've heard people say that God gave them this passion or desire, implying that it is really God's fault for putting a stumbling block before them. This is nothing new, of course. The very first sinners did this. Adam more or less blamed God for being tempted. He said, this woman you gave me. And Eve did the same thing. This serpent deceived me. And the implication there is clear. God, you're the one who made this serpent. So ultimately, you have at least some part in this sin. But we must be very careful with this. God cannot be made responsible for human sin. And humans continue to blame God for their sin. I have a couple quotes here from Kent Hughes in his great commentary on James Uh, First, he said, someone else has said, to err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. Um, And I found that to be a a nice twist on the, we often hear, to err is human, to forgive is divine, and um, to err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human, uh, is very, very true. And another quote from uh, Kent Hughes here in his commentary, uh, he says this, the commonest delusion is is that God has given me passions and appetites so strong, I can do nothing but yield to them. The Scottish poet Robert Burns put it like this, Thou knowest that thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. Burns blamed God for his sensual disposition. He made God responsible for his sins. It was similar thinking to that of the writer of Zorba the Greek, whom he presented as a kind of peasant superman whose strength was displayed in his will to live out his appetites. And in doing so, living out his Elan vital, he was following God, according to this view. Nonsense. End quote. I have another quote here from the book uh, that's titled James Guidelines for a Happy Life. In it, MacArthur writes, Just as it is common for man to be tempted, it is also common for him to blame someone else or something else, not only for his being tempted, but also for his succumbing to it. From the beginning, one of the chief characteristics of sin has been the propensity to pass off blame, and every parent knows that children are born with that very evident propensity. So back to our text for a moment here. Let's look again at James chapter 1. We're going to go to verse 13, and it says, Let no one say when he is tempted. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James is giving a command and an explanation for the command. Sometimes we get a command without an explanation. Here, James gives the command and the rationale behind the command. Let no one say, I am being tempted. Why? For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Time limits me in regards to discussing all of the word studies here, but basically James is saying that it is impossible for God to be tempted. He is not able to be tempted. He has no bent towards sin like we do. He has no desire for anything sinful. You could go beyond that. He utterly hates evil. And he has so ordered the universe that all evil must be punished with death. So God cannot be tempted to do evil. And someone who cannot themselves be tempted does not tempt another. God does test us. And he does allow us to endure trials. But he himself is not the author of evil. In the final segment, we will look at how we are tempted. In segment three, we're going to look at understanding the circle of death when we are lured by our sin, and of desire, sin, and the ultimate result, death. James tells us about a vicious cycle that ultimately leads to death. Ironically, he uses the language of conception and birth to get us there. In a sense, then, James is showing us the life cycle of sin. After warning the one who would blame God for temptation, James writes in verses 14 and 15, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. First off, those who have been fishermen may understand this very well because they know what a lure is. A lure is what the fisherman puts on the line to get the fish to bite. But the same lures don't work for every fish, or even for the same fish at different times of the day or different seasons. Just a couple of days ago, some friends visited us, and the young man, the oldest boy in the family, spent almost all day walking up and down the lake right outside of our home, casting and trying to get some of those bass out of there. During the day, he met another boy out fishing, and he had caught a bass. So what would be the natural thing for any fisherman to ask, what are they biting on? A good fisherman wants to know what lure will be the best one to draw his prey to that line. James tells us that rather than God being the tempter, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about this passage. The biological imagery is vivid. The lust or desire conceives and from this conception sin is born. The unmentioned father is most certainly Satan. The grotesque child sin then matures and produces its own offspring, death. The steps are all too clear. Unchecked lust yields sin, and unconfessed sin brings death. How strange that sin gives birth to death. It may seem strange, but James warned his dear brothers and sisters who were to read this genealogy not to be deceived or led astray. Just as a right response to trials can result in growth to full spiritual maturity, so a wrong response to lust will result in decline to abject spiritual poverty and ultimately to death itself. The devil made me do it is not an excuse. Well, God created me with these frailties. That's no excuse someone tempted me by putting this in front of me, is no excuse. The blame for you being tempted lies in yourself. If you are tempted, it is because you have been lured and enticed by your own desire. What then? Now, James uses the words that we commonly use when we refer to reproduction. There's a conception that happens. If nothing is done to stop this conception, then the desire gives birth to sin. And what does sin always bring in the end? Death. Death is the wages of sin. As Paul wrote in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are wages? Wages are payment. If we receive wages, it's payment for the job we've done. We made an agreement with our employer that if we do XYZ work, whether it's hourly or whether it's by the job, wages are the payment for the job we have done. And in many cases, if we do a great job, our wages will increase. Sadly, the human race has become very good at the job of sin. And the wages we deserve for that sin is death. In another place, James writes about the passions within us. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we see that our sin results from desires conceived and the end product of sin is death. This is very serious. And there is an eternal consequence to it. But not only that, it wrecks our relationships. What causes quarrels and fights? Your passions are at war within you. These passions or desires that are within us are what we are tempted by. Our relationships are affected by this. When we're struggling with someone, what is the root cause of that? It is always this, that our passions are at war within us. Just about everything we fight over comes down to this. We get frustrated with others, usually because in some way they are coming between us and what we want. The driver who got in our way came between us and our desire to have an event-free drive home. The neighbor we are upset with because they don't keep their yard up the way we would like them to comes in between our desire to have a nice neighborhood. On and on it goes. Now, with those two examples, I want to point out that desires are not all wrong. We can have great desires, wonderful desires. Wanting an event-free drive home is not a bad desire, nor is having a beautiful neighborhood. But when those passions are so strong that when we don't get them, we become a monster of a person, then those passions result in degraded relationships it all works together there are evil desires we all have at times as well we need to fight those desires but we are not without help paul writes in 1 corinthians 10:13 that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is always a way of escape. We just don't always take that way. For the Christian, we have the Holy Spirit given to us to empower us to live out the Christian life. We will never find out we sinned and we had to because it was our only option. That'll never be something we learn. I'll say that again. We will never find out we sinned and we had to do it because that was our only option. No, there is always a way out. So stop the as early and possible as possible in the process because even the evil desire is sinful. Jesus pointed this out. That same pattern is evident in what Jesus taught. That adultery begins in the heart. Murder begins with hateful thoughts. So what do we do then? What hope do we have? If the wages of sin is death, what is our hope? The next part of that verse. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. Uh, Death is the end result of all evil. But Jesus took that death on himself for all who will put faith in him as their substitute. Let us look one more time to the writings of Kent Hughes, again from his great commentary called James, Faith That Works. He writes this, In summary, we must never say, God is tempting me. God's nature makes that a moral impossibility. The source of our sin is our own evil desire. Temptations would not be tempting if it were not for our own evil desires. We must never say, the devil made me do it, or my friends made me do it, or circumstances made me do it, or especially God made me do it. We are responsible. Once the hook is in, there is a dreaded three-generational curse, evil desire, sin, death. But the cycle can be broken through solidarity with and submission to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19 Jesus is the source of victory over sin and temptation, and Jesus is the course of a life which triumphs over temptation. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. This is the glory of the gospel. It breaks the power of sin and halts its inevitable train. If you are in the grip of temptation, take the eternally healthy step of admitting that you are to blame and no one else. Then, having confessed your responsibility fully to God, thank him for forgiveness and appropriate to yourself the life-giving solidarity you have in Christ. Next week we'll try to answer a question I received from an Instagram follower, who is Ephesians five twenty one referring to? A great question, and uh, we're going to take a look at some of the nuances and and who that's referring to. Uh, but Ephesians five twenty one says submitting to one another out of reverence for the for Christ, and uh, the short answer is that that's uh, addressed to the church. But there is a some clarification, perhaps, or nuance that we need to look at to understand that fully and to live it out. So, uh, so we'll be looking at Ephesians five twenty one in our next episode. So, thank you for listening today. If you found this to be helpful or encouraging, would you please share it with someone who may enjoy joining us? And. Also, please uh, like and follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, and just about every platform of the major ones out there. So uh, if you have a preference to listen to it there, um, please follow it. Please like it. Um, that helps us to get out there to more. Share it on your social media if you don't mind. Uh, I sure appreciate that. Thank you, and I will see you next time on Truth Trek.